0: You are now listening to the Hunter's Advantage Podcast. We preserve the history and sport of hunting through curious conversation and action-packed hunts, as well as offering you tips and strategy for more successful hunts. Hey guys, Christian Babcock here of the Hunter's Advantage podcast. Today in episode number 78, we sat down with Nick Pinizzotto, the president and CEO of the National Deer Association. Nick and I talked about the quality deer management philosophy, how we become better stewards and managers of deer as a species, and how to set management goals for your own property. I know you guys are going to enjoy this episode. Let's get into it. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening, watching, coming back to consume another episode of the Hunter's Advantage podcast. This is episode number 78. Today, we're joined by Nick Pinizato of the National Deer Association. Nick, thank you for jumping on the podcast. Yeah, my pleasure. Happy to be here. Good to talk with you. So for people that aren't familiar with NDA, or as I remember it, uh, QDMA, uh, When did you start working at the NDA and and kind of give us a brief overview of of what it is for the listener?
1: Sure. So, well, that's not even a simple answer when I started working for the NDA because uh, I started working for the original NDA, which was the National Deer Alliance, and that was back in 2015. So I was there for the entire five years that that organization existed. And then uh, with the merger with Quality Deer Management Association, uh, that's been Heck, we're, well, we've been over a full year, so I, I have between six and seven years, I guess I would say, but a solid six years. Uh, yeah, a solid six years going into seven. And as far as the National Deer Association goes, so yeah, we're a conservation organization. Obviously deer are the centerpiece, wild deer are the centerpiece of what we're about. Uh, we, do a, we do a lot of different things. Everything from if you own land and you want to learn how to manage it better for deer Uh, We're a very good resource for that. We're a good resource for deer education and deer science. So a lot of the cool little facts and things that you see out there about deer and research and whatnot, uh, there's a good chance that we're the ones that put that out. And uh, we do a really cool program called Field to Fork where we introduce new people to hunting and take them out and, and really hook them on the food aspect of it. Uh, We do a lot of policy, so government relations work, all the stuff that nobody listening to this show really wants to hear or talk about. Uh, But it's good to have a partner like us that's out there doing it because somebody needs to do that, and that's one of the reasons we exist. So probably do a bunch of other things in between there, but that's really the gist of it. Uh, But we're a conservation organization for wild deer and hunters.
0: Yeah, no, I love it. I consume a lot of UL's content, whether it's the blog or um, the inter- Instagram post, watching the Field to Fork program. It's it's really cool to watch. Um, but I've spoke with Matt and Lindsay and Hank and a lot of these guys that I think are, are under your umbrella in the organization about some of the nitty-gritty stuff and uh, deer vision, um, heritage programs, recruitment, these sort of things, but maybe just more overarching. Where does this quality deer management perspective, this idea, where does it come from and kind of what does, what does it mean to practice QDM?
1: Yeah. And so that's a, that's a great question. I think it's a good place to start. So um, yeah, maybe a little history on that first. Yeah. One of our parent organizations is, was called, called the Quality Deer Management Association. That organization existed for uh, almost 40 years. So uh, 30, 35 years plus. And so that, a lot of people still will think of us, I think, as the QDMA. And as the name says, quality deer management, what does that mean? So um, what it doesn't mean, and and I'll tell you, we've had struggles with this so that people understand what we're about. What it doesn't mean is trophy bucks for everybody. That's not what quality deer management's about. What it does mean, though, is better better deer, meaning more balanced aged herds. So yes, part of it is letting deer get older. Uh, Most of the bucks in particular that are shot or were shot in many states, at least back when the organization was founded, never saw their second birthday. And so, uh, you know, there are a lot of reasons, recreationally, biologically and whatnot, that it just makes sense to have a more balanced age class herd and healthier herds. And then the habitat part of it. Sure. We want to create better habitat for deer, but also the work you're doing for deer also tends to benefit a ton of other species. When I say habitat. I'm not just talking about what you typically see on television, which is a lot of these big lush green food plots and whatnot. That's part of it. I mean, we're glad people to do that too, but it's timber stand management, cutting trees. It's, it's planning uh, or doing, uh, doing controlled burns, uh, early successional habitat, brush piles, grasslands. It's all these different things that benefit deer, but also benefit the whole host of other creatures. So, Basically though, the gist of it is, uh, we better, better deer balanced herds and a symptom of that is better hunting.
0: So what does it mean to have a balanced herd and what are the benefits of having a balanced herd that I'm going to see as someone who's hunting the deer?
1: Yeah. So there's a couple, when I say balance, I, I think I'm referring to a couple things. Age class is part of it uh, you might have, you know, historically, I would say I I'm, I'm from Pennsylvania and this is where I grew up hunting. And I can tell you when I was a kid hunting, you might have a bunch of old does running around, but you never had old bucks running around. (laughs) So it was mostly older doe age classes and a bunch of 18 year old bucks. If, if one did make it to be two and a half and someone shot it, that was the talk of the town for, for years. (laughs) So, um, so that's one part of it is the age, age class. The other thing is things like Buck to doe ratios. So, for example, another issue that that we would have is that we would have uh, ten ten does for every one buck if you were lucky. And I'm just generalizing here. Uh, and so, you didn't get to experience what what a true uh, sort of what it looks like to be in the Deer Woods hunting when you have balance. Uh, you never had to have. For for example, a buck never had to compete to find a doe. It was actually more of a challenge just to get to as many as he could get to, you know, during that, during that peak window, which I guess, you know, maybe as a college kid, you'd love that scenario. But, <laughs> but in, the, in the deer woods, uh, it's, it's just, it wasn't, wasn't the way nature really intended. So uh, it's not, it's very difficult to achieve 50-50 balance, but you certainly can do better. And so having more of a closer to a 50-50 balance, having not too many deer for what the habitat can handle was another big issue. Uh, That's a big part of it, so the actual health of the animal. And then, um, as I mentioned, the different age classes, you're going to just experience a much more exciting, thrilling hunt if you've got some older deer out there that are going to run into each other, that are going to do things like deer should do in the rut, uh, be very vocal. You might see a snort wheeze. You're going to see a lot more sign laid down in the woods. And I think that just creates overall just a a better experience.
0: Yeah, it's interesting to kind of see these. QDM practices play out in, especially where I grew up. I grew up in Northeast Oklahoma, um, small tracks of land, you usually 40 acres and less and multiple hunters to those tracks. But I've spoke with my uncle about how it used to be. And he, we, we, you know, they shoot Pope and young quality bucks all the time where we live, but he said, you won't believe it. But there was a time where you'd go out and see 18 to 20 does every hunt. And if you saw a buck, that was incredible. Because we've got all these basket racks from my grandpa and my uncle shooting them. he's like, I promise you, there didn't used to be big deer around here because of that. He said that they almost viewed it as a sin to shoot a doe back then. And that's how the herd looked because of it.
1: Well, there are stories here and and people still do it. They'll buy up as many antlerless tags as they can and they just burn them because they just don't understand. They just want to see more deer and they don't care what it does. or They don't want to learn what it does to the herd to have too many deer or the forest. I mean, you shouldn't be able to stand at one side of the forest and see clean through to the other side. And I certainly hear, especially in the mountain areas in northern Pennsylvania, stories from the old the old days, as, as they would call it. They'd see 50, we used to see 50 deer in a day, they would say. And i say, well, how many bucks did you see? And they'd, they'd be happy to see one Y-racked buck out of all those deer. And at that time, they just, it, it didn't occur to them that that wasn't a good thing. So I think education has come a long, long way. And I, I would like to think our organization had a lot to do with that.
0: I think so for sure. And another interesting aspect of it, you talked about hunting older age class deer, which some people might find that synonymous with trophy hunting. And I think those things do correlate in a lot of ways. I think one of the big benefits to QDM is when you're managing for those older age class bucks, you're getting to see a lot of those more high scoring deer. So those deer have more mass and more antler potential. And I think that's a big benefit for people to practice QDM. What are your thoughts on that?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think when I say older age class, a lot of times it means bigger rack deer, of course, because they're getting old enough to reaching full maturity. But for me, it's more than that. It's, it's that you get to see a deer acting like deer are meant to act in the wild. A, a, an 18 year old buck is not nearly the same deer as a four-year-old buck is and until you see your first four-year-old buck in the wild you're not going to understand what i'm saying you know it's just a guy sitting here telling you things and so for me i can i can tell you also i've shot deer five six and a half years old that they don't have super amazing racks on them maybe they're just sort of these gnarly looking racks but i knew the deer were older because i had experience with them And to me, they're every bit the same trophy as one that I've seen four-year-old deer that I've collected sheds from that were 160-inch deer. And to me, that five-year-old deer with the gnarly rack is in some ways even more a trophy than the one that had the bigger headgear. So it's not uh, always just measuring by what a a deer scores necessarily, although that's the easy thing that people go to. Well, what did the deer score? Uh, I've got several deer that I'm really, really proud of that are not great scoring deer, but they're older. and. You know, we run into this conversation all the time. I, I mentioned being from Pennsylvania and where, where I hunt, where I have property is mountainous area. It's a lot of woodlands and a, a four-year-old deer here is not going to look like a four-year-old deer in Iowa. Does that make it less of a trophy? No, not at all. And so it's just part of it is geographic location and whatnot, but yeah, older deer just act like deer are supposed to act. And, and I think it's really cool when people see them, I think they get it.
0: I think that's that's very true. I, I've seen a kind of a change in my psyche of we always use score, and score kind of feels like a little bit of a shallow metric, like you're saying, to examine a deer by. But I mean, one of my most proud deer that I shot last last year was six and a half plus. Um, had a one sixteen inch G two, but had like a handlebar on the other side. Just the ugliest, gnarliest looking deer I'd ever seen, and I was more proud of him than. A lot of deer that I've shot that are way higher scoring. This deer might have shot only scored 80 inches or something, something crazy like that. But I think there's something to be uh something worth celebrating when you get to see a deer that's reached its peak maturity. Like that's just really cool to see the way they act. Just knowing all the adversity, all the winters, all the time. I mean, I think about it now. I'm like, this deer was alive when I was in high school. Like that's that's when he came out. I think there's something to be said about that. It's really cool to see.
1: Yeah, I mean, trophy is really, it's up to the hunter to decide what trophy means for them. Uh, Me personally, and our organization is not one that says, oh, well, you shot an 18-month-old deer, that's bad. And I don't want that, what I said earlier, to come across as that. Uh, My point is just that it's hard to find someone that has laid eyes on a truly mature deer who doesn't, isn't changed almost immediately because it just takes that special moment for it to just click. And when they see that, they're like, oh, there's a whole other level. You know, it's like a kid playing high school basketball and then he goes to an NBA game, right? It's Mm -hmm. like, ah, there's a whole, it's still basketball, but it's a whole different level. And that's, that's probably uh, just another way of looking at it.
0: Yeah, it was cool for me. I, I went from hunting these little 40 acre tracks in Northeast Oklahoma, you know, you'd see a good buck every once in a while to actually going down to Southwest Oklahoma to my, one of my friends ranch who has multi thousand, he's several thousand acres that they hunt and they've been practicing QDM for 20 plus years and going out, I seen more mature high scoring bucks in one hunt that I'd, than I had seen in my life. And it kind of, it kind of burned his nerves on it where it didn't get his, him as excited anymore. He's grew up that way. But to me, I was like, we, we've seen more bucks in this one hunt because of the practices you guys have been implementing than I've seen in my entire life.
1: Well, the first thing I'd tell you is that's a friend you want to keep. (laughs) (laughs) That's for sure. If you can't marry into that kind of property, uh, then at least have a buddy or something that that has it and you can get on. But, you know, even that being said, uh, I don't own very much land. I own a a nice piece of land that I do some management on, but I adjoin uh, over 3,000 acres of state land. I'm right up against it. And I can tell you that the same deer that are crossing my property are on that public land. And part of it for people is just, Number one, you got to have the belief that those deer are out there. Number two, just a little bit of patience. If you just tell yourself one year, listen, you know, unless I'm really hungry, I don't need to necessarily fill that deer tag, that buck tag right away. Let me just hold on to it and see what happens. See what I might see, and that's when I think you get the opportunity to see stuff like you've never seen before. Now, at the at the same time, if you're somebody that I mean, you might look at hunting completely different. You want to go out and you want to shoot a deer that has antlers on its head and put the deer in your freezer. That is awesome. I love that. Every bit as much. And that person loves hunting every bit as much as any of the rest of us do. So we encourage that. Uh, We just have on our own podcast, the Coffee and Deer podcast that, that NDA has, we just interviewed... Uh, a woman from South Carolina who shot an eight-point buck. It's a nice buck, but it's spotted. It's a piebald deer that has all kinds of spots on it, which is really awesome. Yeah, she has she has a better chance of shooting another uh, two two hundred and fifty-inch bucks in a row than she ever does of shooting another spotted buck. So that's a trophy too. So there's just a lot of different ways to define it.
0: How? What's your opinion or uh, on? What do you think having a one buck state versus a two buck state does for, do you th- do you think that encourages people to harvest older age class deer or, or, or no? It's
1: funny. The first thing that came to mind was it helps keep some of us married. <laughs> That's for sure. <laughs> you know, if you, if you got multiple buck tags, knuckleheads like us are going to want to be out there trying to fill them all. But, uh, no, actually, um. It's interesting. I'm not sure what what it really does. I can tell you that the data would suggest that even in states that have very generous buck limits, maybe more than two, most people will still only shoot one. Uh, and so that's interesting to me. People still only have so much time. And let's not forget, it's not easy to just go out and. We talk about it like you could just go out and get one. It's not always that easy. So it takes time, no matter how much experience you have. Um, I do worry sometimes in uh, and I've heard people say this, especially in two buck states uh, where someone will say, well, I got I, I got my first buck and now I'm going to hold out for something better. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, what impact that's actually having on. I mean, it's obviously having an impact because the first year they shot didn't get that extra year, uh, if if that matters. But uh, other, otherwise, biologically and whatnot. It's not gonna. It's not really having an impact, but socially and depending on what you want your experience to be, I certainly hear that that type of story.
0: Yeah, I think just anecdotally, I've seen it as, "Hey, it was uh, super early in the morning, just a few minutes after shooting light. I saw some sort of horns. I shot. It wasn't what I was happy. It wasn't what I was after. It wasn't what it's was going to make me happy. But I got that second tag, so I was willing to roll the dice. And I wonder if that's something that that happens quite often in these states.
1: I, I know it happens enough that I've heard it <laughs> in my, in my circles. And, and you know what? I kind of get it. Um, I don't get, we don't have two bucks. we're uh, in my home state here, but I hunt other states. And so, you know, there is part of it. You know, I shot a, I shot a buck, uh, in Pennsylvania, kind of just at the beginning phase of the rut this year. And then when I went out to Kentucky and Delaware later on. Uh, there was this just natural sense of, well, I don't, I don't have any pressure. I don't need to kill a buck. And so even in those other States, I'm not going to say I was more selective. I just, I just generally kind of, I'm looking for an older deer and, uh, but I don't know. There is just sort of that natural sense of, well, I, I did get a buck this year. So now you might just approach it a little bit differently. So I think it's a good question.
0: How do you think we go about practicing QDM being good managers and stewards of public ground versus private because i know and i've kind of fell into this rut a little bit too of changing my standards on qdm when i'm hunting public versus when i'm hunting private i tend to lean you know a little towards those lower age class deer and i kind of run it through my head of can can i even manage this place can we collectively manage this place or what, what are your thoughts on that
1: yeah that's a really good question um the very first thing, the easiest thing you can do if you're someone that is looking for older deer is to not shoot the young ones. Don't change your standard just because you're on public, uh, excuse me, public land. Um, it's You're not going to be able to go out there with your chainsaw and you know, cut a five acre clear cut, obviously. But showing restraint in your harvest, not changing your goals. Like I said, those deer are out there, what I would encourage people to do that are hunting public land, get some cameras out there. Uh, if you can put them out and not have them stolen, hopefully, uh, and just do some inventory. And I can tell you, you're probably going to be surprised of, of what is just available out there. That's number one. Uh, and so be patient. Again, that's that belief that those deer are there. Now the second thing is a lot of state if it's state land in particular and your state wildlife management agency is taking care of those lands, uh oftentimes will welcome input and an opportunity to come in and say, Hey, I've been checking out this area. Right now it's just it's acres and acres of wide open maple trees and nothing's living in there. Why don't we, you know, would you consider doing a cut in there and bring some of those trees down? Let some sunlight get to the get to the forest floor. And they're going to be receptive to that. Uh, yeah, so develop relationships there with your land managers, whether it's state federal lands, a little more challenging. It's harder to pin down the person that has the authority to do things, but there's probably more opportunity than you realize out there. I can tell you that many of our, our branches, uh, so to our local grassroots groups that are uh, part of the NDA, they do just that very thing. They'll actually do habitat work on public land.
0: That's really cool. So, um, do you think as... People, this is from a private perspective. People that hunt private ground, do you think each person should have a per like set their own personal management goals for a property? And the reason I ask this is because, um, should we hunt properties and set management goals different on, say, a thousand acres that one person hunts versus a 40 acre track with three people hunting? How do we, should, should we set those up, uh, personal? Should we personalize those goals for each property?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think that's, you have to look at every property as as a unique opportunity. They're not all the same. Uh, If my, if the piece of property I owned didn't adjoin thousands of acres of forest, and let's say I was kind of on an Island in between a bunch of ag, I I would probably manage it a little differently uh, than that. I have this, you know, vast forest around me. So you have to take those things into consideration. How many people are going to hunt the property? Um, You know, the number one thing is what is your goal? If your goal is, I'm happy just uh, shooting a a two-year-old buck. I'd like to shoot a two-year-old buck every year on my property. Okay, well then set your goals accordingly. Or if it's that, you know what? I don't need to get a buck every year, but I would like to at least see a good one maybe every year. But if I only killed one that I consider four or five years old, if I only get one every five years or so or get a shot at one, then I'm happy. Well, then that's a different management goal and so some may just have a management goal of, I just want to see lots of deer and and shoot the first one I see and fill the freezer. Then that's your management goal. And I think you manage based on that. Uh, So yeah, I think every property is unique and I know people hate those answers uh, to those questions. Yeah, uh, I'm not a biologist, but I can tell you that when I ask our biologists those questions a lot of times, and they start off with, well, it depends. It kind of drives you crazy, but it really, it really does depend on what your goals are. And I think, that that's where you have to start what do you want to get out of it
0: yeah i i tend to think about it through a lens of of stewardship you know if we have two people hunting this 40 acre track and the state limit is two bucks a piece right we probably shouldn't kill four bucks off this place just because that's what the state is allowing you know we should set our management goals and if we want to hunt this and harvest big deer we should do that accordingly which i think Sometimes means putting personal, like you're saying, personal limits on yourself, um, even though the state's going to allow you to harvest way more, way more deer off that property than you probably should.
1: Yeah. That's the beautiful thing about management is you kind of decide within, within the rules that the state gives you, you decide what you want to do. I can tell you that I finished my season last year with, with an antlerless tag, maybe two antlerless tags in my pocket uh, because I wasn't excited about the idea of trying to take another one off of my place. And I just sort of watched it throughout the season. I had already shot two does and a buck and I, I could have taken another doe. It would have been fine, but you just sort of make those considerations as you go along, uh, depending on your situation. Now, I can tell you when I used to live in Ohio where I used to hunt there, uh, when the winter months would come this, this farm I hunted on, I don't know if the farmer just, his combine never worked right or whatever, but there was always lots of waste corn and soybeans in the fields. And it wasn't just the deer that typically lived on that property. You would see 50 deer in that field that came from anywhere. And so I never hesitated to shoot extra does in the winter in that scenario. So again, every situation is different, but yeah, I think you just got to set your rules and stick to them and do what makes you happy.
0: Yeah, no, I agree with that. Um, so I think I'd seen, uh, on your Instagram where you'd wrote a, wrote a blog or an article for, for meat eater. And I think what you were discussing was how can we as hunters, ensure there will be deer for future generations and deer habitat. And I think you broke that in down into three things. And I thought it was something valuable that the listener would, would probably enjoy too. Cause can you talk about that article a little bit? Did I write that article? I think maybe, <laughs> maybe you didn't write it. I saw it on your, uh, I saw it on your Instagram.
1: Yeah. I mean, maybe I did. I don't know. Even when you're, when you're talking deer, like every, every day, almost every day, you, you remember, you don't remember. Uh, anyway, I can, even if, it, if this wasn't in the article, I can just say, we, matter of fact, we just put out on our YouTube page, Brian Grossman on our team, just put out a really nice, uh, video about five things you can do over the winter for deer and habitat. If you're trying to fight the, the, uh, I guess they call it the, the uh, winter blues. So, um, in order to, to fight cabin fever, things you can do out there. But in terms of uh, the future of uh, what what we can do for the future of deer uh, and and hunting, there's there are a lot of things. I mean, one of them uh, is be involved in the policy. Like I said, if you, it's not going to excite you. I get it. Most people don't get excited about the idea of writing their senator about some deer policy. Well, the the problem is that's where a lot of your decisions, decisions end up getting made, whether it be at the state level, federal level, or in municipal level. And so one of the things we do at NDA is we make it so easy for you to do that. We basically write the letter for you. All you have to do is go through our system and click the mouse a few times and you can send a letter off on an important issue to your legislator. Uh, so that's one of them. Uh, habitat work is another. Uh, so going out, especially if you live in some of these northern uh, areas where we have a lot of snow on the ground in the winter. It's harder for deer to get to food. Uh, I can tell you that over this weekend, I'm going to be out doing, uh, bringing some trees down and bringing some browse down to the deer. It's an area that I need to cut anyway and open up to get some sunlight to the forest floor. And, uh, it's just that double benefit. There's an immediate opportunity for deer to feed on that. And you're going to be creating more habitat going forward. So that would be another example. Uh, the other, another one would be just be involved. There's a chance that not far from you, we already have a branch, a National Deer Association branch, where we do local projects. Or for example, if you uh, you do local fundraising, uh, you get to keep a lot of that money locally there for you to do projects, which is something we've always been really proud of. And if you're listening to this and you don't, you're not part of a branch and there isn't one there, then call us and let's get one started. Because really, our focus is to get our mission on the ground. And so you can hold a field to fork event, for example, locally, if you want to do that. Uh, You can set up cooperatives locally. You can do things like participate in our conservation seed program where you can buy seed through us for pennies on the dollar and plant acres and acres of soybean or corn or, you know, sorghum, one of those three things. So there are a lot of things that you can do just by simply being aware and being involved. And by the way, as I was saying that, Mark Kenyon actually wrote that article and he interviewed me for it. So I think that's what you said. Oh, gotcha. But uh, it did come back to me and I think I hit those high points. So apologize for the senior moment there.
0: No, no problem. <laughs> it's funny you talked about policy in the beginning there because uh, I was watching some somebody's Instagram story today and they were talking about Biden possibly uh, trying to block hunting on over a hundred national wildlife refuges across the country. Have you heard anything about that?
1: I saw a headline. Um, you know, the funny thing about politics is it's never that simple, right? right. <laughs> so you got you have you have this. There's always the story. There's always the real story, and then there are various outlets that write different versions of that story. And then there's also is is we all know at this day and age, clickbait things that click this title. Um, So yeah, I don't I don't know the details of it, but it sounds to me like there is some consideration of a regulation that could impact uh, people's ability to hunt. I would always just what I always encourage people to do is get the facts and don't react just emotionally uh, before you actually read things, and that's that's getting harder and harder to do these days. So
0: that's for sure. That's for sure. So you talked a little bit about the resources that the QDMA offers. Can you talk, uh, the listener maybe through how you get involved in maybe a local syndicate or a local chapter of, of NDA and, and that sort of stuff?
1: Yeah. The the first thing is you can just go to our website and you can look up branches and and find out if you have one near you. Uh, if that fails and you have uh, trouble with that, you can contact, uh, our, our man in charge of that, Mike Edwards, and he's just Mike at dot com, and, uh, he will help guide you to the, to the nearest one. But if you don't have one near you, it's really easy to get one started. And I can tell you that in addition to my professional capacity here at NDA, I also participate in a local branch uh, that we started. And it's a heck of a lot of fun. It's fun to be part of getting the work on the ground. And so, yeah, look it up. It's It's, you don't have to be there as we tell people. There will always be the core group of people that really make it run most of the time. But you don't have to be there all the time. If you get a little bit of a little bit from everybody, uh, most of the time, you're going to have a lot of fun and do a lot of really good things for deer and for hunting. So definitely check that out.
0: For sure. So I'd encourage anybody that's listening to do that. Uh, so one of the interesting things I, I think is is how how biologically diverse deer can live and how what different landscapes they can they can transcend, survive in, and honestly thrive in. And so with deer being the the most hunted big game animal in North America and that's what your organization's focused on what is it that you what do you find so special about deer what is it for you personally
1: That's probably the hardest question you asked me because it's the hardest to articulate <laughs> <laughs> Um and I think anybody by the way on our team would would say this Um for me personally We just, we just love these animals at a really, really deep and unique level. And I think for a lot of people, if you happen to have people listening to your show that aren't hunters, or maybe they're thinking about hunting and they're trying to learn about it, that might come off as odd. Like, well, wait a minute. This guy earlier was talking about shooting these older deer and how exciting and fun that is. But now he's saying how much he loves these animals. That doesn't make sense. Um, First of all, deer are just cool. They are just, there are so many cool things about deer. I mean, you're going to see a lot more for us in terms of just putting out really cool information about deer that chances are most people, even hunters, wouldn't be aware of. Uh, So deer are cool. They are a critical conservation species. So you said that most people hunt deer. And in fact, it's almost eight out of 10 people that hunt will hunt deer. The next closest is turkey, which is about 40%. So basically double the number of people that hunt turkey, hunt deer. And then the next thing after that, I think, is waterfowl. And that's only in the 20% area. And so when you think about the money that's generated for all wildlife conservation, whether it be through the sale of hunting licenses or money that comes through the Pittman-Robertson Act by the purchase of of, of guns and ammunition and, and some other archery hunting related equipment, most of that, the vast majority of that is being generated by deer hunters. And so even if you're not a hunter, if you're someone that is sitting in central Oklahoma and you just like to watch the birds out at your feeder, you should care about deer and you should care about deer hunting because they're paying for the management of those species largely, by and large. And so that's a big emphasis for us. Number one, we wanna start telling people how cool deer are because we think everybody should be more aware of them and not take them for granted. Number two, the importance of them as a conservation species. That if we have less hunters and we have less money going into Pittman Robertson and we have less money coming in from license sales, that means less management of other species and including threatened and endangered species and animals we can't hunt. Uh, So that's something to keep in mind. But me personally, deer, growing up where I did, it was the first really kind of big game animal that I became acquainted with. They were everywhere. Uh, I would, as soon as I was allowed to go out of sight of the house on my own, I would always go out scouting deer. And I just, I spent a lot of time in the woods even before I could hunt. And so I just became attached to that animal, the pursuit of them, uh, trying to match wits with them, Uh, just observing them and admiring them. They're stunningly graceful and beautiful animals. I mean, stunningly. And every, every single deer that I, that I shoot, I still take the time. I take a photograph with every single one of them because I don't ever want to take it for granted. Uh, You're taking a life there. That's a very serious thing you want to do it as quickly and humanely as possible. And when you do it, you also have that feeling of knowing that you did something for conservation. And that's, I mean, how cool is that? And you're putting stuff in your freezer. I, I'm involved. I have a lot of hobbies and I'm into a lot of things, but there's nothing cooler than, than deer hunting and being part of that system. And so, uh, like I said, myself or members of the NDA team, it's more than a hobby. It's, it's who it's we identify with it it's part of who we are
0: i definitely agree with that i think it's like a to me it's like a three-headed monster of deer hunting there's there's the camaraderie that comes with the the people and like you're saying it's part of your lives you meet somebody that's a deer hunter you just feel that infection that they that that reverence they have for for deer and then there's the food aspect of being sustainable uh killing your own food, knowing where it's, where it's coming from. That's a cool aspect. And then just the experience of getting to hunt deer. Um, I talked about the biological diversity, all the different places they can live. To me, the most, one of the coolest things about a deer is that it could live in the desert of New Mexico and the, in the mountains of Pennsylvania, but also live in the swamps of Florida at the same time. That's just incredible to me. One species can do that.
1: Yeah. I mean, they're incredibly adaptable. And that's why they have outlived a lot of other species, right? And they got a lot of things going against them, whether it be humans coming after them or predators or whatnot, automobiles, but they always persevere. I mean, I, I have a, I live in a, ironically being a sort of a redneck hunter outdoorsman. I live in, in the middle of our town
0: mm-hmm.
1: and I've got a little cherry tree out in the front yard that in the middle of the night, the deer work their way out of the hillsides and come right in, in my front yard and eat there. Right. So they can adapt to that kind of environment. I used to live in North Dakota. Uh, they can adapt to this, the extremes of 40 below zero, but also it's basically a desert there too. It gets over 100 degrees in the summer. They can live through that. Uh, they can live in, in high elevations, swamps, like you said. They are very adaptable. I mean, there are only a couple of states in the country that there aren't any, whitetails in particular. So uh, they're, like I said,
0: deer just cool it's cool how um how resilient they are too on just their their will to live i've I've talked to some people that have completed the North American big game super slam and uh, I asked them you know what's the most resilient animal that you've ever shot and they're like it, it would probably surprise you I'm like why is that you know it's probably like a caribou or a moose or something he's like it's it's the white-tailed deer like no animal has the will to live like in the perseverance of a white tail and I found that to be true through my you know my years of hunting too
1: yeah i mean they're they're just different right the way they're engineered uh the way they move about uh, just the amount of energy in a day that a deer puts into being alive i mean you look at a deer how many times have you come across a deer that was just had completely let its guard down almost never their ears are moving their nose is always moving their eyes are moving they barely ever take more than a couple steps without stopping to look and smell and see, and they're always on edge and they barely sleep. And so, uh, they are, yeah, I mean, they are natural born survivors. Like I said, they overcome a lot of things They're right now it's winter. I mean, they can, they can go almost 90 days, barely eating anything at all. I can't go 90 minutes without eating something. (laughs) So, you know, I would be dead out in the wild in five, in in five days, but deer, are like, like we said, are just different. And that's why I said, I never take a single one for granted because sometimes it might seem easy. You make a nice shot with a bow and it falls over within five seconds and is dead. Uh, that's a wonderful thing when that happens. Um, but it's not that easy. I mean, that deer has lived a life and I, I hope that people really think about that.
0: I think another cool thing, uh, about deer is that they have the ability when, like a deer's getting sick, they'll, they'll, they have thing they'll do things like shed their antlers to preserve themselves. Like it's, it's so cool that they, that just talks to their will to live one more time. But the biology the, their makeup allows them to drop certain parts of their body. And even when they're growing up, uh, they put most of, in the first three years, they're putting all their nutrition towards body development and non antler development. And they can sw- flip a switch. And now it's like, now I want to grow horns because I got this body. It's, It's so cool the way that they, you know, the way just they operate.
1: Well, it starts from the second they're born. They're born essentially scentless. And their mother helps to to maintain that actually by eating feces and and keeping that scent off of them. And they also are just genetically engineered to just lay there and not move. And then miraculously, when they decide to move by that time, good luck catching them because they can (laughs) already move really good. You got a small window. And so for, it really starts from the moment they hit the ground, they are just genetically engineered to, to survive. It like much, much, you know, all wildlife essentially has that mechanism to some extent or another, but uh, you know, the way deer do it and then, and then overcoming injury is another one. You know, uh, I'll use a rabbit as an example. Rabbits are, you look at them the wrong way and they fall over dead, right? Uh, Deer are completely different in that regard. I mean, how many times you, they get hit by cars or they get on they move on three legs or people have uh shot deer and they field dress them or or butcher them and they find uh, arrows lodged in there or pieces of bone people have found other antler broke off in a, in other deer skulls before it's it's just unbelievable uh, what they can what they can uh, get through and overcome to stay
0: alive yeah it, it's pretty incredible you, you talked about, uh, this dichotomy a little bit of, of loving something, but also harvesting and managing it. And it kind of took me to a place where I don't think I really went before is, can you talk a little bit, uh, just about the North American, like management model and kind of how we've preserved, I, I want to talk to this because if there's maybe people that are listening to the podcast that don't hunt or they're just thinking about it, uh, about that model and how we actually preserve species for future generations by hunting them, by setting standards. Can you talk about that a little bit?
1: Yeah. And I think I touched on it a little bit earlier by talking about the amount of money that is generated through hunting for all wildlife conservation. Uh, you know, if you're someone that is interested in, uh, sage grouse, for example, you should care about deer hunting. You should care about how your wildlife agency gets money to support those activities. And so that's part of it. Hunting, uh, you know, here, here's the deal. If, if we didn't hunt, especially deer, which can, by the way, be very destructive uh, on their own habitat and, and some, in some situations can literally eat themselves out of a place to live. Uh, that's not a good scenario, just from a conservation perspective. They, they have to be managed. So even if you're somebody that, like I said, I find deer to be absolutely beautiful, but I also am well aware of what happens if you don't manage deer. I'm aware of things like chronic wasting disease and, and EHD and other, other things that deer, uh, you know, can have or die from, uh, what, what a starving herd looks like. So that's the other big part of it is hunters are playing a really critical role in that big picture. Everything from providing the money for conservation to providing the service much needed service of population control. I mean, you're seeing too, in the deer world, this sort of uh, popularization of hunting urban areas. I mean, there we have hunting celebrities that that's what they do. They got noticed because they're out there shooting a whole bunch of deer in people's backyards in cities. And that's a cool thing. They're providing a service. They're feeding themselves. In the meantime, they're feeding a whole bunch of other people Uh, of the deer I shot last year, I I gave all but two of them away and and had, you know, helped other people eat, which is also really cool. So uh, without getting in deep into the details of the North American model, in a general sense, that's really what it's about. Hunters have a role in conservation uh, through the harvest and through the participation in the sport. And there's all these other uh, aspects too that, that are less easy to quantify, but are important. So people doing habitat work, people giving back all, like I mentioned, our branches out there doing good work on the ground, making a difference. Um, That's, that's priceless in my opinion.
0: Yeah, I think so too. Um, Well, that's, that's all I had, Nick. I admire what you guys are doing at the NDA. I appreciate your willingness to jump on and and discuss these things Uh, for people that want to connect with you or want to become a member of the NDA Uh, Where can they do that?
1: Yeah, so the best place to start would be our website at DeerAssociation.com. And uh, also, I'll give your listeners a little hint. If you go in and you want to become a member for our $35 membership, which is our, our basic annual membership, if you use the promo code podcast, you'll get five bucks off. So if you've heard it here, go there and do that. Use that promo code but also check out our YouTube page. There's a lot of really great stuff on there. As a staff, anytime we're out doing anything, uh, we're always shooting video, educational stuff to share with everybody. And we're very generous with it. There's no haywalls or anything like that. We share the information. Check that out. We're also very active on our Instagram and Facebook pages as well. And then for me personally, I am uh, very accessible. And you can just simply email me at nick at deerassociation.com and be happy to answer any questions that you might have.
0: Well, thank you again for coming on. Uh, Let's do it again sometime. I appreciate it, Nick. Yep. Pleasure was all mine. Thank you. Thank you guys so much for checking out the Hunter's Advantage podcast. If you enjoyed the episode, make sure to leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcast, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you listen to the podcast. Thank you guys so much, and we'll see you in the next episode. Thank you guys so much for checking out the Hunter's Advantage podcast. If you enjoyed the episode, make sure to leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcast, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you listen to the podcast. Thank you guys so much, and we'll see you in the next episode.